Truth Espresso, episode 93. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, friends. Daniel Minnick here, your host for Truth Espresso, coming at you with another exciting episode in the series, Is Jesus Like Superheroes? And as last we left off, we were asking and answering the question, Is Jesus Like Captain America? And so episode 89 was part one of answering this question. And we had a few episodes in between as my wife, Chelsea, and I discussed the Equality Act. And so I hope that you had a chance to listen to those episodes and consider the dangers of the Equality Act and how its ambiguity was a boon to lawyers and dangerous to Christians and those who believe in common sense. But now we are back to continuing the series of Marvel and DC superheroes and how they compare to Jesus Christ. And what this series is about is looking at church history and the various controversies that came up over the identity of Jesus Christ. Is he like an alien, a demigod? Is he just a man? Is he some kind of mixture of the two? Or maybe he's two persons. But we are now looking at the idea that Jesus is both human and divine, and our example for that is Captain America. And another thing that I like about this episode in that we're doing part two, and actually we're going to have a part three to this one. What I like about this particular one is Jesus like Captain America is that we have Captain America as a podcaster in the Christian podcast community. Now, I don't mean the fictional comic book character that is drawn in the pages, and I don't mean Chris Evans from the Marvel movies. I do mean Chris Honholtz, the host, the co-host of Voice of Reason Radio with Rich Story, and Chris Honholtz, I think for some kind of uh, charitable events uh, with other people, will dress up as uh, different superheroes, and Chris Honholtz has a full Captain America getup with a cool-looking shield, and he looks as close to the real thing as you can get, and so hats off to Chris Honholtz and his Captain America persona. And I hope that you look at this episode and episode 89, part one of his Jesus Like Captain America in your podcast app. If it has the logo for Truth Espresso there, if you notice it for these episodes, that logo for Truth Espresso has been altered to show a picture of Chris Honholtz as Captain America there. And so I thought it would just be kind of fun there, you know, have this unique opportunity to point out Chris Honholtz as Captain America and use his picture there. And that's just kind of my plug there for Chris Honholtz and Rich Story. So I encourage you to uh, check out 
their podcast on the Christian podcast community called Voice of Reason Radio, and I will provide a link once again in the show notes for this episode, which is part two of Is Jesus Like Captain America? And so, being that this is part two, let's do a little review of part one. Now, I don't want to steal the thunder of part one because I highly encourage you to listen to part one so you get more details about the background, more information about Captain America, and more information about uh, the historical events surrounding this question and why we picked Captain America. So, who was Captain America? For review, well, Captain America in the Marvel Universe is a a guy by the name of Steve Rogers, a young guy who once was a frail artist who joined the military, and he got injected with a special super soldier serum to become superhuman. And then for review, we asked the question, how was Captain America like Jesus? Well, Captain America wins wars against the bad guys, and I guess Jesus, according to the scriptures, likewise will win war against the bad guys at the end, at the last day. Another similarity between Captain America and Jesus is that both of them are one singular person. No, I don't mean that they are both the same person. Jesus is not an alter ego of Captain America. That's not what I mean. I mean that they are each only one individual person, unlike Dr. Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk, because the particular controversy before this one was, is Jesus like the Incredible Hulk? And we looked at Nestorianism, that at least the idea that came from there was to split Jesus' humanity and divinity as if they were in two different persons. And so, that was not true, and this particular controversy, which we're representing by Captain America, is kind of like the other end of the spectrum there. That it is true that Jesus is one person, and the Oneness Pentecostals, if they really study what they are proclaiming in the idea of God indwelling Jesus in an effort to maintain a Unitarian God who's only one person, the Oneness Pentecostals deny the Trinity, but what they call the Incarnation, when they say that Jesus is God, it's a lot like Nestorianism in that the Logos indwelt Jesus, the human, and that there's really a personal distinction between the God who indwelt the human and the human person himself. And so, if Jesus prays to the Father in oneness Pentecostalism, really, there you have two persons there. You have the divine person and the human person, kind of like the Incredible Hulk there. And so, Nestorianism in history, although Nestorianism is Trinitarian, the oneness Pentecostal understanding of Jesus is what I've called Unitarian Nestorianism. And so, unlike Nestorianism, where Jesus is two persons, he has two distinct natures, yes, but each nature has its own person there, uh, we get to this 
question, is Jesus like Captain America? And where uh, Captain America has it right is you're just dealing with one person. You're not dealing with two different persons in one uh, human body. So Jesus is like Captain America and that both Jesus and Captain America are individual persons. They're not two persons. Well, of course, that's uh, quite the distant similarity there, because in this way, we are all like Jesus, and that each of us is one singular person, unless you're dealing with the schizophrenics uh, that need to wear those long coats with the long sleeves. And another similarity by review is that Captain America is both human and super. And according to Christian orthodoxy, Jesus is both human and super. But how are Captain America and Jesus different when we're talking about humanity and divinity? How does Captain America not really represent the way humanity and divinity are represented in Jesus? Well, according to orthodoxy, Jesus has two full and distinct natures, human and divine. His human nature is fully human and his divine nature is fully divine. Now, Captain America is the result of two natures fused into one, and this is how uh, the representation differs. This is how Captain America doesn't truly represent Jesus as both human and divine. The super soldier serum dispersed and chemically broke down and mixed into Steve Rogers, and his humanity as the frail artist was altered by the serum so that he was now superhuman. He had increased human abilities that were beyond what a human could have without such a serum. Now, I did mention by review from part one in episode 89 that other superheroes could have resembled this part human, part super mixed together thing. Uh, Spider-Man is an example, and Spider-Man is actually uh, what Todd Miles uh, used to represent this particular idea. In his book, Superheroes Can't Save You, I've also used this a few years ago when I taught a Sunday school series, basically the, the topic of these episodes that I'm doing for Truth Espresso. Uh, the Fantastic Four could have represented this. You have Mr. Fantastic, the elastic guy, the human torch, uh, the thing, an invisible woman. Woman, uh, They were all altered by an accident, and so their human nature was altered by the superpowers, but it's still only one nature where the two, the super and the human are mixed together. Other examples include the X-Men, Rogue, Cyclops, Wolverine, Iceman, Magnetic, Magneto, and so on. Um, these are actually mutants from birth, and so they probably would have done a better job um, representing this idea of one nature that's a mixture of the two. But I wanted to pick Captain America so I can um, pick on Chris Honholtz a bit or, you know, plug him and give him some listeners and so on like that. Yeah, as if I have anything like that to offer him, he's much further advanced along as a podcaster than I am. 
and because he got into the crosshairs of Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, and you have the whole um, Buddy the Elf thing going on, so you could check that out if you listen to some episodes of The Dividing Line, where James White uh, mentioned that he had mailed Chris Honholtz uh, Buddy the Elf, because Chris Honholtz, uh, uh, when re- replying to uh, James White's tweets, mentioned that he had never seen the movie The Elf, and uh, Dr. White figured he would pick on Chris Honholtz, and and now it's become a thing, and Chris Honholtz has kind of gotten a little bit overwhelmed and exhausted by uh, people wanting to pick on him and even mail him things having to do with Buddy the Elf. <laughs> and so... Maybe this helps uh, Chris a little bit here if I talk about his Captain America persona and not uh, focus uh, the episode on Buddy the Elf. <laughs> so, Chris, if you're if you're listening to this, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> now, all these examples of superheroes are not like Jesus. Captain America is not like Jesus because Captain America being human and super are mixed together in one nature. And as we'll see, uh, that's not what Jesus is. He still maintains the distinction. He has two natures, human and divine. They're not mixed together because the result of mixing them together is that you don't have a human or you don't have God. You have a third thing. And now to review just a bit from episode 89, part one of this question is Jesus like Captain America. What teaching in church history thought about Jesus this way that he had one human divine nature? Well, it was called Eutychianism or monophysitism. That sounds like a long, a big word there, confusing word, but mono meaning one, uh, physics, you know, physitism, if you think of physics or just physical, you know, nature. So it just means has to do with one nature. The idea that Jesus only had one nature is monophysitism. And Eutyches, the one who basically taught this idea, he wasn't the originator of it, but he was a strong proponent of it. Eutyches was a was an Archimandrite monk. Uh, this just meant that he headed a monastery of other monks. There were about 300 monks in his monastery in Constantinople. Eutyches taught that Jesus had one nature as a result of the union of the human and divine natures as Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. He taught that Jesus was of two natures rather than into natures. And so that simple preposition of the Greek word ek versus en the Greek word for in. So just like with the Arian controversy with one letter difference, here you have a controversy where there's one letter difference. And mostly Eutyches emphasized the divinity over the humanity. I mean, obviously, you know, if you compare the sizes, if you would, of the two natures, which nature's bigger, which nature's more uh, magnificent? If you were to combine them into one nature, what would the result overwhelmingly be? 
Well, naturally, the divinity would overtake the humanity. And so, Eutychus was known for saying that the humanity of Jesus dissolved into the divinity like a drop of wine or vinegar or honey in the ocean. And so, basically, Jesus, if he had a human nature, it was overwhelmed by the divine nature in that mixed-together union. And if Apollinarianism, if you remember the question, is Jesus like Iron Man? If Apollinarianism was an overreaction to Arianism, the Thor idea, then Eutychianism was an overreaction to Nestorianism. So, thinking of Jesus like Captain America or Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, was an overreaction to the idea that Jesus was like the split personality of the Incredible Hulk, uh, a human and a divine person living together, uh, sharing one body. Now, Eutyches the Archimandrite was so anti-Nestorian remember the Incredible Hulk idea, that he thought of Jesus like Captain America or Spider-Man. And now let's look, let's recap briefly a little bit of that history of what happened with Eutyches. So, Eusebius of Dorlaeum, who was the same guy who initially pointed out and accused Nestorius of teaching heresy, accused Eutyches of teaching uh, a heresy of the opposite extreme. And then that caused Flavian, the Archbishop of Constantinople, to hold a synod or a meeting, kind of like a, a, a small council there in Constantinople in 448 to try Eutyches. And Eutyches first refused to come. He basically gave the excuse that he had his monk duties in the monastery and this would interrupt his um, spiritual duties. But eventually he came to the Synod later on, and the Synod found Eutyches guilty of a heresy and deposed him from the monastery. And now Leo, who was Bishop of Rome, wasn't happy that he didn't have a say in what was going on there. Now, Eutyches appealed to Emperor Theodosius II for a second, more impartial hearing, and Theodosius was likewise anti-Nestorian and arranged a council at Ephesus in 449. Now, remember that Ephesus was the same city where Nestorius was tried and found guilty of heresy. So, there was a definitely a stigma against Nestorianism there. So, Eutyches was likely to find some common ground there at a council in Ephesus. There was definitely a stigma against Nestorianism for sure in Ephesus. Uh, Leo, uh, Bishop of Rome, was happy that Eutyches might get a fair hearing, and, and he sent two legates, or representatives, to this council here. And they came with a letter that Leo had written to Flavian that described his position about how Eutyches was ignorantly wrong, but that he could be corrected. This letter described how Christ was one person with two full and distinct natures. Emperor Theodosius put a guy named Dioscorus in charge of the council. 
Now, Dioscorus was patriarch of Alexandria, and he definitely had an axe to grind against Flavian and Eusebius. The second council of Ephesus in 449 turned out to be a kangaroo court that favored Eutyches and stacked the deck against Flavian and Eusebius. Dioscorus didn't allow their side to present much evidence and allowed a monk from Eutyches' own monastery to be a witness there. Dioscorus didn't allow Leo's letter to be read there either. Dioscorus also had a large army of monk warriors waiting outside the church building where this council took place, and at the end of the council, Dioscorus accused Flavian of heresy. When Flavian tried to appeal for his life, Dioscorus sent his army in to beat him up. Uh, Eutyches got to walk out squeaky clean back to his monastery and continue monophysiting for a bit. (laughs) Uh, Leo of Rome, his two legates at the council, barely escaped back to Rome to tell Bishop Leo the news. And of course, once again, Leo wasn't happy for the opposite reason with this council either, needless to say. Uh, Leo called the second council of Ephesus the robber council. And this is where part one left off. Now, part two of the saga is going to get more exciting and yet another council to deal with Eutyches and tie up some loose ends. So the poor elderly Eutyches had to be tried at basically three councils within a four-year span. And by this time, uh, he was at least 70 years old. Well, when you're teaching what seems to be a novel idea about Jesus that questions orthodoxy during this time, you've got to deal with these type of things. So, that brings us from the robber council in 449 at Ephesus to the council of Chalcedon in 451. So, Leo, Bishop of Rome, pushed for yet another council that would be truly unbiased this time. You know, maybe third time's a charm. Emperor Theodosius wouldn't hear of it. Uh, You know, he had his axe to grind just like Dioscorus, and he was so anti-Nestorian, he embraced this Eutychian monophysite idea. Uh, Emperor Theodosius tried to get even more bishops into office that thought and acted like Dioscorus to make sure that monophysitism was the new orthodoxy. And anything resembling Nestorianism or that can possibly even be confused with Nestorianism, he wanted all that to be stamped out of existence. But yet that power struggle would turn. Emperor Theodosius II would die in the summer of 450. He would uh, be knocked off of a horse and die from the injury. And as a result, there was a bit of a power vacuum there. Uh, Theodosius' son, Aspar, was a military commander and acted somewhat as commander over the empire, along with Theodosius' sister, Pulcheria. So, Pulcheria, Theodosius' sister, married a guy from the east named Marcion, who was a candidate for emperor that Aspar recognized. 
Uh, Marcion then became the next emperor. Now, if you've heard the name Marcion, uh, don't confuse him with this guy named Marcion. Marcion, uh, from hundreds of years ago, was uh, a Gnostic heretic. Um, the emperor Marcion was more balanced and actually held to an orthodox Christology. This new emperor Marcion stemmed the tide of flooding the empire with bloodthirsty bishops in the vein of Dioscorus of Alexandria. Emperor Marcion was in favor of hosting a new council to determine the fate of Eutychianism. Uh, Leo, Bishop of Rome, wanted the council to be in Italy, but the emperor decided to host it in Chalcedon for some political reasons. Um, there was a problem with the Huns uh, invading from the north down to the Danube River, making a western location a little bit more dangerous. Uh, ever heard of Attila the Hun? Uh, yep, this was the time of Attila the Hun. So, a Christological controversy had to be resolved during the time when Attila the Hun was making his conquests. Now, this council was going to be in Chalcedon. And Chalcedon is now a part of modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. So, you can go to Istanbul and you can actually see the location of where this council was held. Now, the, the building has been rebuilt. It's not the same building, but you can see the location. The Council of Chalcedon began October 8th, 451, which was 20 years after the Council, the first Council of Ephesus in 431. And the Council of Chalcedon was held in the Church of St. Euphemia. The Council may have had upwards of 21 sessions, uh, but only 16 of the sessions are documented. There were 520 bishops there, making it the most attended of these ecumenical councils. So let's look at some of these sessions to see how things went down. And of course, uh, just like with some previous episodes, if we come up with ideas that, say, Roman Catholics have about the authority of Rome, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome as a Pope, or the infallibility of, of the Pope of Rome, um, we'll look at some things that happened there and see how we'll put those to the test. So the first session of the Council of Chalcedon began basically as a shouting match between supporters and uh, opponents of Dioscorus. Uh, Dioscorus was there, and he declared about the two natures, about the natures of Jesus, quote, I accept from two, I do not accept to, unquote. So basically, Dioscorus was a monophysite, um, along the same vein as Eutyches. He accepted that Jesus was of or from two natures, but he didn't accept the idea that uh, the incarnate Christ possessed two distinct natures. Six supporters of Dioscorus would end up deposed by the end of this session, but that would not last. Dioscorus's support was starting to wilter, and the, you know, when I said that this would not last, it didn't mean that Dioscorus would win the day. It just meant that these supporters of Dioscorus would kind of change their minds. 
Now, at the second session of the Council of Chalcedon, bishops read the creeds of Nicaea and Constantinople. Uh, They also read the letters of Cyril of Alexandria against Nestorius. Finally, Leo's letter was read. So Leo finally uh, got to have his letter read at a council. Uh, This letter to Flavian is often known as Leo's Tome. After it was read, which was the last of the creeds and letters that were read, many bishops declared, quote, This is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe. Thus the Orthodox believe. Anathema to him who does not thus believe. Peter has spoken thus through Leo. So taught the apostles. Piously and truly did Leo teach. So taught Cyril. Everlasting be the memory of Cyril. Leo and Cyril taught the same thing. Anathema to him who does not so believe. This is the true faith. Those of us who are orthodox thus believe. This is the faith of the fathers. So, does this sound like the Roman Catholic teaching of papal primacy? Like the Bishop of Rome is the leader of the whole church? Uh, let's see if the whole church actually believed that as as it is taught today. You know, sometimes those of us who are Protestants might uh, read the part where they said uh, Peter spoke through Leo, but notice, you know, the there's the idea that, you know, Peter appointed a bishop and who appointed a bishop. And so someone who's sitting on the chair of Peter, um, who's a successful assessor of Peter, would be a kind of a present day representative of the idea of Peter if they hand down the teachings. And so the idea is that what Leo was saying is agrees with what Peter taught. And likewise, uh, someone who was an, was bishop of Antioch, someone might say, you know, James has spoken through whoever the bishop of Antioch is, because James uh, was uh, an influential apostle in Antioch. So that's the idea there. Now, at the third session, Eusebius of Dorylaeum finally got his say against Dioscorus of Alexandria. At this session, Dioscorus himself was deposed and accused of misconduct and heresy in the Second Council of Ephesus, the Robber Council, two years before this. So, the tables have turned a little bit here. At the fourth session, um, the bishops discussed the definition of the true faith again and the creeds. Leo wanted language about, quote, in two natures added to an official definition of faith, but the council could not yet agree on that. Now, that is not to say that I would disagree with Leo here. (laughs) I have read Leo's tome multiple times, and I really like it. I'm just pointing out that the idea of papal primacy or infallibility was not present yet at this council. We will see this even more. Because for Leo to propose that certain language be added and that not accepted, uh, where is the primacy of the Bishop of Rome here? Now, the fifth session was the most significant session. It finally approved Leo's addition to clarify in two natures and drafted the creed of the council. So, a Roman Catholic might say, see, Leo got his way, there's primacy there. Well, 
if there's the idea of papal primacy, you're the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, why wouldn't they accept it right off the bat? There was a lot of strife over the wording of the definition in this statement that would come out of the Council of Chalcedon. Once again, if the Bishop of Rome has primacy, why couldn't the council simply defer to Leo? There were disagreements over whether the term Theotokos, or as it's translated, Mother of God, should be in the creed. Some bishops exclaimed, quote, Let it be set down that Holy Mary is the mother of God. Let this be added to the creed, put out the Nestorians, unquote. When a declaration came that if anyone would disagree with the current creed that the council should convene in the western regions, basically the idea that if they didn't agree with certain things, they would shift the council to western regions rather than Chalcedon, some bishops of Illyricum shouted, quote, Let the dissenters make themselves known. The dissenters are Nestorians. Let them go to Rome. Unquote. Ah, so here we have something interesting. Apparently, some bishops believe that Rome was a bastion of Nestorianism. If some bishops had reason to believe that the Roman church was Nestorian, then where was the idea of papal primacy or papal infallibility? The vast majority at the council constantly demanded to cast out the Nestorians. The Nestorians were still uh, a very big problem that they really wanted to make sure they addressed. It was like the great Satan here. If Leo could have been accused of Nestorianism, where was the idea that the Bishop of Rome held the truth for certain? Now, when the question came up as to whether Leo or Dioscorus was correct, they agreed that Leo was correct. Nevertheless, they didn't agree with Leo simply because he was the Bishop of Rome, and that's what I want to emphasize this, based on what was said here, that some bishops called the Romans Nestorians, and this was in the context of evaluating Leo's words. Which were right, by the way. I'm not saying that they weren't right, and I'm not saying that Leo was an historian. I'm, what I'm pointing out here is that if we look at the council here, the Bishop of Rome didn't have ultimate power or ultimate say, as some people might teach today. The Council of Chalcedon also declared 30 canons along with its creed. Canon 28 of the 30 canons of the Council of Chalcedon is yet another challenge to papal primacy. It said in part, quote, The bishop of New Rome, Constantinople, shall enjoy the same privileges as the bishop of Old Rome on account of the removal of the empire, unquote. Leo declared this canon null and void, but it remains an official canon of the council. Now, once again, if it was an established doctrine of the church at this time that the bishop of Rome is over the whole church, why should such a canon even be considered against Leo's wishes? Now, enough of the papal primacy and stuff like that. Eutyches and the monks of his monastery were banished, and the elderly Eutyches uh, passed away soon after this council. 
So let's go to the text of the Council of Chalcedon, which is the statement of orthodoxy against Eutychianism and Nestorianism and actually other heresies once again. So I will read it and I will point out where different statements clarify that the truth is against some of these other ideas of Jesus. So the text of the Creed and how it carefully argues against various heresies is as follows. Following, then, the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, against Nestorianism, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, against Eutychianism, truly God and truly man, the self-same of a rational soul and body, against Apollinarianism, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, against Arianism, the self-same co-essential with us according to the manhood, against Docetism. Like us in all things, sin apart, before the ages begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of Mary, the virgin Theotokos, as to the manhood, against Nestorianism, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, against Nestorianism, acknowledged in two natures, against Eutychianism, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, against Nestorianism and Eutychianism, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved, and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis against Nestorianism. Not as though he was parted or divided into two persons against Nestorianism, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ against Nestorianism. Even as from the beginning the prophets have taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. And so that is the translation of the, the Creed of Chalcedon, and it, see it addresses all these previous heresies. Now, you can point out more that was against Nestorianism, but you also have the clarification that the truth against Nestorianism must also be against Eutychianism or Monophysitism. So the Creed of Chalcedon officially declared that Jesus was one person with two full and distinct natures that are united but not mixed together. They're not confused. They're not reduced in any way. And so, now, stay tuned for part three of answering the question, is Jesus like Captain America? Where we're actually going to get into some verses, we're going to really address what is the real problem with Eutychianism or Monophysitism, and we're going to dive deep into some passages of Scripture. So, put on your seatbelts and your thinking caps, because it's going to be quite the ride, but I hope that we can all be the better for it and that we can really love and appreciate who our Lord Jesus Christ is as a result of this study.
Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 